The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello, and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. The Drug Policy Alliance held its 2023 Biennial International Reform Conference over the weekend of October 19th through 21st. Let's start with a panel from Friday, October 20th, entitled For Us, Near Us, a conversation about OPCs, gentrification, and resource allocation in marginalized communities. The moderator of that panel was Professor Samuel K. Roberts, Ph.D. Professor Roberts is an associate professor of history at the Columbia University School of the Arts and Sciences and Sociomedical Sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Today's panel is in part about gentrification, of course, as the title says. Um, and I think in this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at that, uh, certainly. We're going to look at what it means and interrogate the idea itself. We're going to talk about gentrification and nimbyism. Um, not just a battle of property values and conflicting views on what a community is and deserves, although yes, gentrification is very much about that. But I think all of us here also know the larger context, the systems of oppression, especially racial capitalism, in which the object of our discussion this morning has evolved over many decades. And yes, I do say racial capitalism, because at its fundamental level, this is a conflict for public resources and the terms on which those public resources are allocated. And what do I mean by that? I mean that the relationship between communities of color and the larger polity historically has been one of extraction, right? Just taking, taking, and taking of one from another. Uh, many of the communities which we serve and which are currently the targets of gentrification themselves were formed in the crucible of segregated housing, a system in which landlords, uh, usually white, could rely on inflated revenues from families who were prohibited by either law, as in redlining, or by informal real estate practices from living anywhere else. They can, in fact, charge more for rent for lesser services, extracting, 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 taking, taking, taking. This is uh, the very definition of racial capitalism is but one example. For decades upon decades, over a century, these communities then paid their share of taxes, but in return have received inferior services and protections guaranteed to similarly positioned white citizens. That relationship also is extractive. And let us think about the eras of mass incarceration and of drug war. Both came at another moment of crisis for American capitalism. 50 years ago, American cities were in a death spiral of job and capital flight. All right, the four decades or so since the New Deal in which we uh, have, could have at least expected some sort of protection from economic want and poverty were coming to an end. Under uh, Reaganism saw to that, starving urban budgets while depicting black and Latinx poor as criminals as welfare queens, as less thans, you get the picture. Given that the large majority of those negatively affected by the war on crime and the war on drugs have been poor, have been people of color, we certainly must think of augmented police budgets, accelerated prison construction, forced labor in prisons, and the like less as criminal justice policy and more as just simply a labor policy. This too has been extractive. For every body located, like a physical human body located somewhere in the criminal justice system or in the, in the addiction treatment system in many cases. Somebody is getting paid. There is someone who, uh, for, for example, officers who arrest people. There's judges, bailiffs, clerks, and other employees that work in the courts. They're all getting paid. There's correctional officers and managerial staff, 
private companies who build and manage prisons, parole officers who do as much to, to keep people from in the system than to help them, family courts and others who tear families apart. Extracting, 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 taking, taking, taking. It goes on and on, and like I said, it's all extractive. And I don't want to be simplistic about it um, in my comments, which will frame this discussion. It is a, it, it's, but at a certain point, at what point do we ask, has this all been about public safety, meaning the war on drugs and the war on crime, or has this been a massive stimulus package, a jobs program by another name, for example, uh, a program for one group at the literal and moral expense of another? Because ultimately, you cannot have the post-1980 premise that a shrunken government is the best government, but then massively grow that same government through the prison industrial complex, unless you fund that growth through the extraction of value from the commitment and from the commodification of black and brown bodies and communities. That's just a fact. Money is money. Um, <clears throat> you cannot spend nearly 50 years shrinking the public education sector, Social Security, even Medicaid and Medicare, without expecting that people will increasingly rely on their real estate property values as their retirement plan, their equity as their safety net, their property taxes as their only means to fund their public schools. Gentrification in this regard starts to look a bit like disaster capitalism, but in a slow motion. And when all these things are on the line, one's future as they get older, one's children's future in their public education, and when one is convinced that one's most reliable hope is in property, not collective power, then that person is going to need stigma to help them sleep at night. Anyone who also lays claim to the public space and resources to which you think you're entitled simply because you own some property, now you need to think of them as less than. That, my friends, I believe is the function of stigma. It is economic, it is political, it is not simply effective and emotional. Yes, my friends, in the disastrous combination of racial capitalism, of carceral capitalism, and real estate investment capitalism, 50 years of neoliberal retrenchment and budgets ledgered in racial capitalism and balanced on the backs of racialized people, the chickens are coming home to roost and we are all out of chicken feed. That was Professor Samuel K. Roberts, PhD, Associate Professor of History and of Sociomedical Sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. He moderated a panel at Reform 2023 entitled For Us, Near Us, a conversation about OPCs, gentrification, and resource allocation in marginalized communities. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Over the next few weeks, I'll be bringing you some great audio from Reform 2023, so many brilliant speakers on a wide variety of topics. And I just want to take a moment right now to thank the Drug Policy Alliance for having an online component to this year's conference and making the effort to include those of us who could not, for whatever reason, get to Arizona. Let's get back to Reform 2023. One of the panels on October 21st was entitled Cashing in on the Drug War in Daily Life, Following the Money and Motivation of the Drug War Profiteers Within and Beyond the Criminal System. One of the panelists was Colleen Daniels, Deputy Director of Harm Reduction International. What I want to talk about is um, some of the funding issues that we have in terms of global level funding for harm reduction um, and also where we're actually seeing the money going. Um, I'll start off by saying that when people tell me there's no money for health interventions, I will say that's a bold-faced lie. Yeah. Because we have money, and I'm going to show you how much in a little bit, um, we're just not using it in the right way. 
So currently, in low and middle income countries, we spend about 131 million on harm reduction around the world. That's it. That's all we have. Um, we have a 95% gap in the funding for harm reduction. Yet, we are spending 100 billion a year on law enforcement for the war on drugs. So we're spending 750 times more on law enforcement than we are on essential um, services like harm reduction. And UNAID says we only need $2.7 billion annually to meet all the harm reduction needs of people who inject drugs in low and middle income countries by 2025. So it's not like we're asking for the sky, the moon, and the stars. We're actually asking for a small sliver of a budget that can fit in um, anyone's budget. And most low-income countries, they actually only require 11% of that total resource. Um, so they don't, you know, they don't even need that much when we're looking at the overall figures. Um, and, and one of the, I'm going to talk a little bit about our punitive approaches to health because health is punitive. Our current global health system came from tropical medicine. Tropical medicine was all about keeping uh, British white people alive in countries that had malaria and yellow fever. And that actual system never changed. So it's very punitive. If you are asking people who are taking opioid agonist therapy to come in every day and you watch him take a pill, that's about control and it's punitive. That's why opioid agonist, my apologies, that's why opioid agonist therapy is so expensive to deliver because we are too lazy and do not want to invest in treatment literacy for people. Um, that's a side note, by the way. Also aging, so stop me if we do too much of that. But, you know, so we started looking at, well, where is the money going then? Who is funding this war on drugs? And we released a report called Aid for the War on Drugs a couple weeks ago. And what we discovered was that uh, dozens of donors led by the United States and the European Union have used their overseas aid and development budgets for narcotics control. So we all know that development assistance is about poverty alleviation and about development in low and middle income countries. You can't tell me that narcotics control is about poverty alleviation. What we've heard is that it's about poverty creation. And we found a billion dollars is actually going to narcotics control. It's been cannibalized from aid budgets. And about 70 million of that funding goes into countries who still have the death penalty for drug-related offenses. So you as taxpayers, Americans and Europeans, Western Europeans in this room, you are funding the war on drugs when you think you are actually helping people to develop their economies and uh, their social infrastructure. And we found that you know, these donors, and of course the United States is the largest donor, then comes European Union institutions, Japan, United Kingdom, Germany, um, Korea, Denmark, others. Um, and what we found is that we spend more in our overseas aid and, develop, uh, aid and development budgets on narcotics control than we do on school feeding for children. Right? We spend more on narcotics control than we do on household food security programs, on early childhood education, on labor rights, and on the promotion of mental health and well-being. So, and we actually spend almost the same amount on narcotics control as we do on uh, participation in international peacekeeping operations. So, 
we have found that the war on drugs is actually situated in almost every level of our organizational budgets, right? Whether that's at an international or a national level or down to the city level. And it's coming out of places that you would not ever expect. You would not think it should come out of an aid budget. Um, and so, you know, another example of this is that my, my colleague Gaj, who's sitting here in the front, he's from Nepal, and found that USAID, so this is the American aid agency overseas, their office in Nepal has a job vacancy. And it was, um, it says the incumbent serves as project manager for a multi-year international Oh, sorry, for a multi-year international narcotics and law enforcement project fo focused on Nepal. Now, USAID has not engaged in uh, narcotics law discussions in Nepal. Um, the last time they did that was in the 1960s. So why does USAID have to fund someone to look at narcotics control in Nepal when Nepal needs running water and freaking electricity? It doesn't make sense. So we need to be aware of where this money is going. And the US, and I'm gonna use the US as, US as the example because most of you in here are Americans or you're from regions that have been affected. But the US exerts control in the region through several key international strategies. So a lot of you know about the Merida Initiative where the US spent 2.4 billion worth of bilateral assistance in Mexico in the form of technical resources and equipment and uh, especially training for different ranks of law enforcement between 2008-2014. We also saw this in Colombia. Um, Eight billion was funneled into security and development assistance, including military counter-drug efforts between 2000 and 2011. And you know, this is really a type of narco-colonialism, isn't it? This is really colonialism by any other name. The DEA, as uh, Eliza mentioned, is um, one of the, the most insidious agencies in terms of moving into countries and cannibalizing budgets. They actually have offices in nine, uh, 93 offices in 70 countries. And in 2019, their budget alone was $3.1 billion. Now, can you imagine what you could do with $3.1 billion uh, for people who use drugs in the US alone? And, and this, this phenomenon of pouring money into law enforcement is seen in almost every country that we actually work with. So in Thailand, law enforcement, they put in 2.55 billion in 2019. In Indonesia, it was 250 million. 81 million of those were on prison costs related to, to drug offenses. Um, here in the US, so it's been what, 53, 53 years uh, since the war on drugs began. 39 billion was spent in 2022, 1 trillion since 1971. So we have money for essential services. We're just not using it in the right way. And the funding and resourcing of oppressive and discriminatory drug regimes by these wealthy Western states, it's there to uphold colonial power, right? These are white supremacist structures that are there to oppress us to control us, they've always been there, and now they're just called different things. It's called the war on drugs. It's called incarceration instead of a slave system. And a lot of the aid that, the money that goes out to other countries comes in the form of financial and material aid, technical assistance and capacity building, public awareness campaigns, and legal and policy influence. 
So I'm going to give you an example of some capacity building. When we looked at how much of that de development assistance money was spent and where and where it was spent, it was spent on law enforcement capacity building. It was spent on polygraph capacity building. Now, polygraph is one of the most debunked interventions. You can't even get it into our court of law. Why are we training people in the, in the global south to use polygraph? And we found activities that actually included surveillance. There was a lot of, there were a lot of surveillance activities. None of this is about poverty alleviation or development in a, in a country. Um, in the United States, went into Liberia and influenced them to such an extent that they actually um, wrote a law about um, the war on drugs, which they didn't need to do. That country did not need to do that. They are not a linchpin in any sort of, um, when you're looking at A, the, the number of you know, narcotics moving through the country, in and out, or they're not critical. So why did the United States have to go in and influence them? And that's about broader influence in West Africa and about controlling of resources there, right? It's why France almost went to war with Niger a couple months ago, because Niger said, actually, you are putting a pipeline through our country and uh, so that France can get oil and gas. And by the way, we don't have running water and electricity. So how about we say no? Um, and so I just want to give you two more quick examples. In, in um, 2010, Wachovia, which is now called Wells Fargo Bank, um, was found to have failed to apply proper anti-laundering stru uh, structures to the transfer of $378 billion into accounts. So. Um, and HSBC, another major bank in the world, they were fined $109 uh, billion, uh, also for, for money laundering. So when we're thinking of who is profiting from the war on drugs, it's actually the banks that we use, right? So we are also complicit because we're not looking at what our banks are doing. We're not looking at what those institutions, those companies we support are actually doing. Um, and none of these, these uh, banks were actually ever taken into to court because they found, the, the, the U.S. Department of Justice said it might destabilize the global financial system. So the bank was too big. So we don't need to go after them. We don't have to worry about that. Um, and, and, you know, the, uh, the, land, the last point I'll, I'll talk about is corporate capture of emerging markets and land grabs. And we're seeing this particularly in cannabis. Right? The worst thing that we could see happen in Colombia, for example, is they'll de decriminalize cannabis, and then all these companies from the US owned by rich white men will come into uh, Colombia, and they will be the ones in control. That is something we have to absolutely stop. Because at the heart of it, in countries like Colombia, we should have indigenous-owned cannabis companies utilizing indigenous approaches to farming. Because what's happening right now in Colombia is that they have pulled in this transition process, this peace process, and what we're seeing is the land that was supposed to be uh, give, go back, we, they were asking farmers to stop using the land for illicit drugs and to use other um, crops. And what happened is those small farmers were pushed off the land by big agricultural business. So they came in and these agriculture companies came in and they, uh, they've, all, they've purchased the land. And so now we're seeing monopolies, 
right? So these are the other insidious ways that we are looking at who is making money off of the war on drugs. And so I think at the end of the day, if we want to change the narrative, we have to talk about who is profiting, who is making money, because at the end of the day, should we give a about anybody and what what drugs they're deciding to use and what they're not going to use not at all but we should be thinking about this white supremacist structure that controls every one of us and you've, you've heard about it in various levels here today and so part of that would be you undertaking budget advocacy right you can go to our website hri.global and you can have a look, a look at a lot of our tools that we offer where you can start to look at how you can track the money at a city level at a state level at a global level. That was Colleen Daniels, Deputy Director of Harm Reduction International, speaking at Reform 2023 on the topic, cashing in on the drug war in daily life, following the money and motivation of the drug war profiteers within and beyond the criminal system. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Now let's hear something from the first day of the conference, Thursday, October 19th. This panel was entitled, Writing Wrongs Worldwide, Drug War Reparations in a Global Context. We're going to hear Dudu Hebeiro with the Brazilian Drug Policy Platform Network. I'm coming from a blue-black community in Brazil that is affected by the war on drugs. And we create, uh, me and my colleague Natalia Oliveira, seven years ago, the Black Initiative for a New Drug Policy to denounce the, the war on drugs like a mechanism of the genocide. So we are talking about the update of genocide in diaspora, African diaspora. And the, I, I have to read because I'm a little bit nervous, so if you don't understand anything, you just say, I repeat you. Uh, there is an ongoing transnational massacre of indigenous and black populations promoted in the name of the supposed war on drugs. Um, the war on drugs in Brazil is killed thousands of people every year. Last year, more than 6,000 people were murdered by the police in Brazil. In the 10 years, the Brazilian police killed 50,000 people. It's important to highlight the harmful nature of militarization, not only in Brazil, but in several uh, Latin America countries. Militarism compromises the democracy and it steals the public budget. When we're talking about the war on drugs, we're talking about budget, we're talking about money, how the money uh, from public health and another rights are steal from the, the, by the war on drugs. We propose to think from the paradigm of the one against drug trafficking as a transnational mechanism that finances and collaborates with the black genocide in the diaspora, acting decisively in the unequal distribution of life possibilities in the health con wealth con concentration, in the plundering of national states, and in the elaboration of a restricted human capital, where humanity is as close as possible to whiteness and where other peoples are subject to the logic of the supremacy. We are talking about the, the genocide, the idea of the own drug is, is a project of supremacy, a white supremacy that is led by US around the world, and we have to talk about this. Um, in a global context in which violent episodes are constantly occurring, inspired by racism, the great challenge is to make local suffering relevant and at the same time create a field of understanding 
an articulation and confrontation that promotes the recognition of black genocide in Africa and the diaspora as another face of barbarism, of mass violence in the contemporary contemporary words, and which must also be an object of containing action from the acceptance of those instruments and reattention of the international communities. Um, uh, we just launched our research about reparation and rights and justice in Brazil, the Black Initiative, and it's the first national publication of the Black Initiative uh, it provides an overview of the counters, reparation, and justice measures and analyzes how current drug policy contributes to a scenario of criminal justice, mass imprisonment of black population, resulting in rights violation and death. We, we try to, to make this study with the people they are directly affected by the war on drugs. So we go to the cities in Brazil to, heard, uh, to, to learn with the people how they see how the one drugs impact your life and how we can make um, policies together to get out of this scenario. Uh, dialogue with drug was always a priority, of course, young people from favelas, modern families, members of people in conflict with the law or in prison, people survive prison. 9% of the people we heard was black people talking about how the war on drugs are in your life. And the way in which public security policies implemented in the five states where the interviews were carried out has unanimous elements such as brutality, repression, and selectivity of policy approach to black people in their territories. That's important to say because we are talking, we are asking to the people talking about play, uh, public safety in the people connection with death, with brutality. We are talking about safety, but the people don't, don't look to the state and think about your, your safety. The people think about death and brutality. Um, the fear generated by the policy violence, which is used as a kind of pedagogical and repressive device to maintain the black people in a state of constant alert and apprehension. We, we are trying to, to understand how the one drugs impacts in the mental health of the people. So we ask about this. Um, just to finish, um, another measure mentioned repeatedly by the participants and which related to the previous topic is, is access to public policies because the one drugs impact in the in the um, life of people, when you have shooting in favelas, we don't have access to health, to education. We have a lot of researchers in Brazil that show this. We, it's not just the lethality of the war on drugs and the imprisonment of people, but the people don't have to access another rights like education and health. Um, and the last dimension we'd like to to see the people talking about was about the dreams. Bringing the dimension of dreams to this research aimed to identify how criminal injustices interrupted or drastically modify the life trajectories of black people. And as a counterpoint 
identify hopes in the sense of beauty alternative for a future in the face of systemic process of rights violation because it's important to we keep alive, we keep dreaming, and how the one dogs interrupt this dreaming. So we would like to hear about the people saying about your dreams. And when we're talking about young black people, the people cannot dream in Brazil because the results, the results of drug policy. That was Dudu Hibedu with the Brazilian Drug Policy Platform Network, speaking at Reform 2023 on the topic of righting wrongs worldwide, drug war reparations in a global context. And I'll be bringing you more audio from that conference in the next couple weeks, so keep tuning in. For now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Find this edition of Century along with an archive of past shows at the Drug Truth Network website, drugtruth.net. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy and the failed war on drugs. For now, For the Drug Truth Doug Network, McVeigh this is so Doug long. McVeigh so asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy. Mm-hmm.